0: Our sermon today is taken from John thirteen twenty one 21-30. This is the word of God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what he needed for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ryan.
1: Let us pray for the Spirit to be here as we preach the Word of God. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to be here that if anyone is here who feels a sting of betrayal that you would comfort them that you would remind them that you are a true refuge you are a true joy you are a true fortress and that we have every reason to bless the lord for you have forgiven all of our iniquities you've healed all our diseases you've renewed our youth as the eagles you have removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west and as high as the heavens are from the earth, you, O Lord, are our Father, and you love us. We have every reason, therefore, to rejoice. And I pray here, if there's anybody who is feeling as well a guilty conscience, they have been someone who's betrayed. Any betrayal that may not yet have been confessed, that they would be confessed and that they would be reminded that they have a guilty conscience before them, that if they confess and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in him. Father, as we go through this text, help us now see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, and help us now see that we can rest by his side, recline next to him as he faced betrayal, as he faced the tyranny of the devil, as he faced ultimately death by crucifixion, completely for our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this is a dark text. This is the betrayal of Jesus um, the night before he was crucified. He was betrayed by one of his close disciples, Judas. And just no way getting around the darkness around this text a tough text for us to read it. It's a tough text to understand, perhaps, that Jesus was a perfect man, and yet he was at the same time betrayed by his own people. He was indeed a man of sorrows. And there's really two ways we could read the Bible. The first way is some way that we we can all fall into. The first way is reading the Bible as really a helpful book about us. The Bible becomes a list of stories that tell us what we have to do a list of stories that tell us moral examples, a list of stories that communicate to us how it is that we can better our lives, how it is that we can improve our lives as Christians, as believers in God. That's the first way we could read the Bible. So every story in the Bible, every psalm in the Bible, every uh, everything about Jesus even, becomes a means by which we can learn what to do. So we come away from the sermon, oftentimes we come away from reading our Bible from our devotionals, by, by thinking to ourselves, okay, that's the example, that's what I'm going to do. And that's partly true. Of course, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we can learn from. There's a lot of things in the Bible that do pose for us a moral example that we should live by. There's a lot of wise things in the Bible. But I'm going to suggest that there are things in the Bible that you're going to miss if you read the Bible in that way. And in fact, the central point of the Bible is not fundamentally to tell us or to communicate to us how we could better our lives, how we could morally improve ourselves by way of examples. And we might be able to get away with reading the Bible in those sort of ways, but not so with these upcoming texts. Not so with these upcoming texts. Because Jesus is about to talk uh, to, to his disciples about him going away, and him going away specifically on their behalf. Jesus is going to make clear, if you look down in your passage, in verse 33 of chapter 13, it says that where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, Jesus is saying here, whatever it is that he's about to do, he must do it alone. His disciples can't follow him there. It's not the point for his disciples to follow him there. He's not, in other words, our example in whatever he's about to do here. Not only that, in verse 36, when Peter asked him again, why couldn't we go with you? Jesus answered again, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So whatever he's about to go through here, in this meal, right before he was crucified, this is the night before he was crucified, whatever is about to take place here, from his betrayal all the way to the crucifixion, is something that uniquely Jesus is doing for us and on our behalf and our task here as Christians is to recognize that all we can do at this point is rest by His side, witness what He does for us, and realize that what He does for us is representative for us, and what He does for us is complete and final. Yes, we imitate Christ, but finally and ultimately, He is our representative. And as we go through this text, there are three things I want to point out. The first is that Jesus was betrayed that he was betrayed. The nature of the betrayal, we're going to go through that. The second thing we're going to cover is how Jesus was betrayed. What are the means by which he was betrayed? How was he betrayed? And third and finally, why Jesus was betrayed. So first, that Jesus was betrayed. Let's get through our bearings of the details of this text so that we can set the scene before us. Let me read again from verse 21 all the way to 24. After saying these things, Jesus was truly troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It's to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, it's important that we get the setting of the scene clear and straight, right? Back in those days, in the first century, normally, especially with the Jews, they had these intimate meals together that the host would invite their closest friends, and they would have these intimate meals because they didn't have A table and chairs the way that we do in the modern era. They didn't sit around like that. They sat instead on cushions, and there's a table kind of in the shape of a U. And so everyone was able to face each other, and they recline towards the table, their face towards the table, their legs facing away the table. And then they would recline with their left hand like this on the table itself, and then with their right hand, they will eat the food. Right, so this is why Jesus was—I um, mean, John was reclining against Jesus, and Jesus was able to give bread to Judas in such a close proximity. This was an intimate setting. That's why meals in the ancient world was always an intimate time. You don't just invite anyone to have meals with them. It is something for close friends. It is something that you want to host people with. And this is the sort of context that 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 maybe in the disciples' mind was celebratory. Maybe in the disciples' mind was really intimate. But in the middle of the setting, right after Jesus had washed their feet just last week. We saw that. Jesus says this astounding thing. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another. They didn't even say anything. They just they just looked shocked. They are just uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. They had no idea what he was talking about. Even though he had said it emphatically, in fact, in verse eighteen, he he quotes Psalm forty-one, verse seven, and Psalm forty-one as a whole. I think is in that in his mind. Psalm forty-one there talks about how a close friend of the psalmist who shared bread with him would betray the psalmist. We read it in our confession of sin, and he's predicted this all the way throughout the Gospel of John, and yet the disciples still looked at one another, completely shocked. And and this is this is a betrayal. A betrayal always happens. In a matter that is unpredictable. A betrayal by its very nature is a breach of trust. It's a violation of trust. It's a violation of friendship. It's a viol- it's, uh, it's, it's things that you, you can't expect. It's a violation of everything that you thought was predictable expected from a person. Especially from someone who's close. A betrayal by definition is a relational thing too. Only someone who's close to you. Someone that you could regard as someone you can trust. Someone who's a friend to you. Or a family member to you. Can you say that this person truly betrayed me? Because you trusted them and trust was violated. Friendship was violated. Trustworthiness was violated. And Jesus here, of course, when when you face any betrayal, you're going to be disoriented. In verse 21 there, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. You could translate that that wording in the original language in many different ways. Some people could translate this as Jesus was torn apart. He was just completely... Completely torn apart, broken down into pieces. His mind was not able to function such that he was visibly, visibly anguished. So much so, that the disciples couldn't even say a word at him. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus had spoken. And so this says something about whatever sin is, right? Sin is a relational thing. Jesus does not see Judas' betrayal merely as a breaking of a Ten commandment about telling the truth. Jesus saw Judas' betrayal as a relational betrayal. Every sin that you've ever committed has, it has to do with rules. But behind these rules are true relationships and, and true relational goals and foundations and aims. Why shouldn't you lie? Because if you tell the truth, that's how relationships flourish. Why shouldn't you be greedy? Because if you're generous, that's how relationships flourish. Why shouldn't you betray your friends? Because you know that friendships depend upon a close bond of trust. You can't function without trust. Even in your best businesses, you have to function with trust. And so, Jesus is troubled in the spirit. He can't help it. It's disorienting. And it's important here to keep in mind that Jesus, friends, is God in flesh, He's a perfect human being, right? He's the perfect human being which means that everything that he does on this broken world, everything that he did in his incarnate ministry, everything that he did while he was on earth, represents for us how a true human being is supposed to function. A true human being is not, therefore, supposed to just shrug it off when betrayal happens to him or her. A true human being doesn't just look at sin and say, I'm just going to get over it, right? Oftentimes, especially if you have this sort of alpha male mentality, you often think, right, what? That the kind of perfect human being is kind of like Denzel Washington in The Equalizer, where there's an explosion in the background, and he walks away like like, like nothing had ever happened, right? Or Liam Neeson in Taken, you know? Yet you your daughter's taken away, and what does he do? I'm going to get revenge. Simple as that. I mean, I'm just going to fly over there, and I'm just going to take it into my own hands, there's no, no, no signs of remorse, no signs of anguish. And oftentimes we, we counsel people in that way. We see people suffering under betrayal. We see people suffering in, in, in every kind of situations that are grievous because of a sin. And then we tell them oftentimes, hey man, just get over it. Man up. And over and over again in this gospel, Jesus' example completely contradicts that. You don't just get over it. When someone betrays you, you don't just get over it. Judas, by the way, isn't just an external person here, right? We saw and believe over and over again in this gospel, people who rejected Jesus' signs, people who rejected Jesus' arguments, people who rejected Jesus' example, people from the outside, witnesses to him. But Judas, friends, Judas of all people, he was there and Jesus washed his feet he was there sleeping on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. He was there with him every night. He maybe, he maybe even had sermons of Jesus memorized. Judas wasn't just any, any person. We're going to see that the closeness of Jesus and Judas even more later. But Judas was spending every night, every day, every waking hour taking care of Jesus' money, sleeping in the same rooms with him, having conversations with him, Knowing Jesus inside out, knowing his daily schedule, they had intimate conversations, they shared friendship together, they had life together. And you see, that is absolutely frightening because what that tells us is not merely how disorienting betrayal is, how, how, how serious this, this, this betrayal is, but also how persistent unbelief is. In other words, you can be exposed to the God of the universe in flesh. You could be under his wing all this time. We could be listening to his sermons all this time. We could have participated in suppers with him. We could have been baptized by him. We could have been listening at every move, knowing him so well inside out. And yet unbelief still remains. There's a staying power in unbelief that despite all the miracles, despite all the signs, and despite knowing Jesus' perfect integrity, knowing that he was able to do all these amazing and miraculous things right before his eyes, taking care of his money, and yet be completely blind to who he truly is. And that's absolutely terrifying. (sighs) And the disoriented character about about, about this betrayal, right? It doesn't just extend to Jesus. John, too, was absolutely shocked. He was bewildered. You know, it's interesting. Look at what what John said to Jesus in verse 25. So that disciple, namely the apostle John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? Peter had motioned to him to ask Jesus, and so John asked Jesus, leaning back on his bosom, it literally says. And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And what's fascinating to me as I went through this text was that John said nothing. Why didn't John intervene? Why why didn't he say, wait, what? Judas? You know, it's unclear whether or not Jesus said that to, to John out loud that, that it is to whom I give this morsel of bread that's the one who's going to betray me or whether he whispered it to John. But either way, it's, it's amazing to me that John said not a single word. It was almost as if he was stunned. He was perplexed. He had no idea. He didn't know what to do with it. He, 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 this is the man that's been keeping their money. This is the man that shared gospel fellowship with them all these years. He had no idea. and, and Now, if you look back, in the Gospel of John multiple times you're going to see these subtle references that John says about about Judas, so for example, in John twelve a few weeks ago, we preached on this when Mary poured ointment on jesus 's feet, John was angry at mary John said why shouldn't why why are you so wasteful why, why shouldn't you just just keep that money, sell the perfume off, and give the money to the poor and then there's a, there's a little parenthetical references. inserted by the Gospel of John, inserted by the author, the disciple John, and it says, Judas didn't do this because he cared about the poor. Judas did this because he loved money. And then in 670, when Jesus says, the one of you is the devil, and then in John 13, where it says, the one of you remains unclean, John remembers these vivid details because John was able, suddenly, I think at this moment, he was silent, he was shocked, he was perplexed. Why? Because suddenly, this is what betrayal happens. This is just what happens when, when, you're, when you're betrayed. A single betrayal puts into question every other experience you've ever had with that person. Right? Now John, John is suddenly seeing, wait a minute. Judas is, is selling our, our master, our Lord, our Savior for 30 pieces of silver. So, so that's what he meant, right? When, when he got angry at Mary. So that's why he reacted that way when Jesus fed the 5,000. That's why Judas responded in all these specific ways. Suddenly he looks back at those experiences, and then he didn't see the Judas who said all the right things about caring for the poor. He didn't see Judas who was feeding people. He didn't see Judas who was keeping money as a good steward. He suddenly saw a very different perspective on it. And anyone anyone who... (laughs) Lord forbid, anyone who's 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 facing the betrayal, especially if a spouse or or a partner cheats on someone, right? Suddenly you're, you're looking back, that business trip that, that he went on. Okay, what was that really about? When he came home late that one night, what was what was that really about? You, you see there there's there's a disorientedness about this betrayal, about any betrayal that makes us question every other experience before that, makes us reevaluate it, makes us, makes us wonder deep inside it. And friends, Jesus was a man of sorrows. <laughs> the book of Hebrews means it. When he was fully man, just like you and I are, able to sympathize because he was tempted in every way, felt every range of human emotion he could ever feel. He was torn apart. By this betrayal so so he was truly betrayed don't 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 miss that we can't just skip that this is a real betrayal that affect jesus he wasn't just god in flesh and, and didn't let things affect him he was fully affected okay second point how was jesus betrayed we saw that he was betrayed it was it was an incredible thing it was something you couldn't predict something that disoriented him something that disoriented john how was jesus betrayed And I think this text tells us at least in two ways how he was betrayed. First, in the the level of real choices by, by, by sin and human characters within the story. And then at the same time, alongside these real human choices on the level of the story and the level of history, is a cosmic force, real spiritual battles, real spiritual realities that took place behind the scenes that gave a further explanation of why Judas did what he did. So let's go with the first one first. Okay? The real historical circumstances, the sin that marked Judas. And, and fundamentally, Judas' was, Judas's hidden sin was that he loved money more than he loved Jesus. And Judas kept that sin completely hidden. And, and, of course, when John looks back at all these events, it, it all comes clear. Judas loved money. He, that's why he took care of the money back. That's why he got angry at Mary. But, but Judas loved money more than Jesus. And, and, and notice, and this is absolutely terrifying for us to think about. It's absolutely terrifying for me. Judas was able to keep this sin so hidden and so well that for three years, every time Jesus said that one of you is the devil, one of you is going to betray me, None of the disciples had any clue what Jesus was talking about. You see, when he gave the, the piece of bread to Judas, look at verse 27. Right? After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. We're going to come back to that soon. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do Do quickly? Look at verse 28. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Right? <laughs> It's not like when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. They all looked at one another and said, I knew it. I, it's, it's Judas all along. Or, or one of you it would know it. It's Peter. right? He speaks so much. There's none of that. They looked at one They're just shocked. How clear could it be? Jesus gave this piece of bread. Do what you have to do. And they think, Judas is so well kept judas had it all together judas was so trustworthy that they thought that judas was going to give something to the poor just just pause and think about that my goodness they didn't just they weren't just confused they weren't just surprised they thought the opposite that when, when when jesus gave this piece of bread to judas they think oh judas He's taking care of the money so well, he cares about the poor so much. You remember when that time when he got angry at Mary because he wanted to give money to the poor? That's the Judas we knew. And this is absolutely terrifying because friends, this is not a sin of unbelief from outside of the church. This is not a sin of unbelief outside of the fellowship of the gospel. This is a sin of unbelief within the church. In other words, you can be hanging out every Sunday, every lunch every community group, you might have poured your heart out to this person. And if I told you right now that one of you here had been stealing money from the church, you would have no idea that it was that person. Sin is not merely persistent then that that, that Judas could stay within Jesus' presence and still be conniving and still love money more than Jesus and still want to plot against Jesus. Sin is also so subtle, so powerful, so hidden, that not a single person could detect it when you're around them. That should make you tremble just a little bit, or a lot. Nothing about Judas gave any impression that he was going to do this. Nothing. That's not only the case. Judas didn't only love money. Judas didn't only harbor a persistent kind of unbelief. Judas didn't only did all those things. He also had a hidden sin. There's a a deeper cosmological, cosmic, spiritual battle going on here. And it's found in verse 27, the one we just read. Look at what it says there again. He had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Iscariot. Then after Judas had taken this morsel of bread, Satan entered into it. This is the first time the word Satan is mentioned. In other words, it's it's the first time that Satan is, is, is named. Not only that, look at verse 30. So after receiving that bread, the narrator emphasizes again, he immediately went out. There was almost a causal relationship between, between him taking the bread and immediately going out to set all the events in motion so that Jesus would be betrayed, right? Now, John Piper in a sermon on this, and I think he's completely right, he heard in this passage echoes of the book of Job. Remember what happened in the book of Job, right? Job, who was righteous before the Lord, who, who had a clean heart, Maintain his family well, he was also a wealthy man, and Satan came to God saying, You see, Job only loves you and only serves you, God, because you have given him a good family and a good amount of wealth. You take away the family, you take away the wealth, Lord, I'm sure that Job will curse your name. Satan, in other words, needed the permission of God to give afflictions to Job. And then, the moment God gave that permission, Satan did his thing, and 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 Job's wealth was taken away, his family was taken away, just like that. In other words, there's there's. Satan, is on a leash; he cannot do what God doesn't permit him to do, and in fact, he cannot do that which God disallows him to do. So, so, so there. Let's look at listen to the causal language of this. After he had taken the morsel, verse 27, Satan entered into him. It was almost as if, at this moment, Judas, I'm giving you over. At this moment, Satan, I'm allowing you to enter him. And at this moment, verse 30, you will go out and God's plan is irrevocable and and, and the scriptures will be fulfilled. There's a cosmic level of causation here. That, that, that explains in part Judas' love of money. And that causal level here is that there is real spiritual forces at work behind this event. You see, this is not a mere meal. This is not a mere human exchange. Every sin that we've ever committed, everything that has ever taken root in our hearts is a cause for unbelief. Everything that we've ever thought about in contrast to God, everything that has any implications whatsoever for your spiritual life, your battle is not with flesh and bones, friends. Your battle is with the principalities and powers and the thrones of the dominions, the demonic powers at work in the sense of disobedience. But God is sovereign. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. This is not some kind of plan B. And so Satan entered into him. And there the the, the the events unfolded and it went on. So that's how Jesus was betrayed. Not only because of hidden sin, but because of the sovereignty of God. This is God's plan. And notice God's plan doesn't elude suffering. Jesus was the only obedient one. And the obedient one suffered the most. Jesus was the only perfect human being who should know no suffering, but instead he was the one who is the man of sorrows. Right? The plan of God includes suffering and we... Christians, oh man, should we never be surprised when suffering comes our way? God never promised anything about a better life in terms of this world. But there's another way in which Jesus was betrayed that that points us to deep irony. So not only is there a hidden sin, not only is there a hidden sin, not only is there a cosmic force, a spiritual battle and Jesus lays down his life, and this is all part of the Father's plan so that Satan would enter into Judas. But there's also a deep irony here that is absolutely moving. And that's again found in verse 26. And those acquainted with, with the patterns of the hosts and a dinner in the ancient world would, would know this deep significance of what Jesus is doing here. Look at what Jesus says. The last thing that Jesus says to Judas and the last thing that he did to Judas, before Judas went to plot Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus answered, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. And then verse 27, as it says, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, meals like this, especially in the Jewish world in the first century, means a few things, right? The, the the host of the meal would sit somewhere in the middle. And then those who have a priority of place would sit closer to the host of the meal. So John, the beloved disciple, sat probably to Jesus' right. And, and, and Judas, wherever he was sitting, was able to receive the bread from Jesus without Jesus having to pass the bread to someone else. He didn't say pass this to Judas. He gave it to Judas as he was reclining by hand, which means that Judas was sitting at a special place close to the Lord. And not only that, it is ancient custom in these sort of meals, and I think this was a Passover meal, for the host to give personally to the special guest in the room by his own hand the first piece of bread dipped in a kind of uh, 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 a sauce mixed with sour wine and and, and dates, and would give it to the special guests in this meal. And he did this to Judas. The very thing—this is the deep irony—the very thing that set in motion Satan's entering into Judas. The very thing that set into motion. The very thing that would lead to Jesus' death and betrayal and crucifixion was the very token, of, of was the greatest signal of, of, of hospitality, of privilege, of favor that a host of a dinner could ever give. And when he gave that morsel of bread to Judas, he's not only communicating, you are a special guest. And in an irony of ironies, Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, in a paradoxical fashion, Jesus almost here is extending to Judas at the very last moment one more chance. It's a paradox because Jesus knows the scripture has to be fulfilled. It's a paradox because he knows Jesus had to lay down his life for his disciples. It's a paradox because we know this is exactly what God had set in motion all the way back from the Old Testament. This is what Jesus had to do. He had to die and be betrayed for you. But in a paradoxical form of irony, This motion of giving Judas this piece of bread, showing that he's the honored guest at the table, and him saying, you are going to do, do quickly, is a form of hospitality that bids Judas to come back. And look what Jesus says. He didn't rebuke him. What you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus wasn't clueless like the other disciples. Jesus wasn't taken aback by this. Jesus Jesus wasn't, 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 what, you, what was he saying there? Judas, at this moment, you're still a special guest at my table. And not only that, Judas, I know you. I see everything about you. I know everything that is in your heart. I know everything you've been plotted. I see through you. I see deep inside you. And Judas looks him in the eye and Jesus looks back And what is Jesus saying in a paradoxical fashion? Come back. I see everything you've ever done, and I still love you. You're still welcome at my table. You're still my honored guest. Come back. The very thing that set in motion Jesus' betrayal was the deepest form of hospitality, love, and unconditionality that Jesus could have ever offered anyone. Judas, I know everything in your heart. I know everything you're planning. I know everything you've ever done. Anything. I know everything that you're about to do. Take the bread anyway. Love your enemies. Third and final point. Why was Jesus betrayed? It's easy for us at this point to be completely downtrodden. It's easy for us at this point to look at Judas and say, how could he? The beloved master offering him one more chance of forgiveness, one more chance of repentance. The beloved master offering him this special privilege, this beloved master who spent three years teaching him, guiding him, feeding him, washing his feet even. How can it be that someone like Judas could still have the guts, the audacity to betray someone like Jesus? Friends, but this isn't unique to Judas. And in fact, next week we're going to see Jesus is going to predict Peter's betrayal too. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. And you're going to start to compare. You're going to start to compare. You're going to start to say, well, Judas set in motion the betrayal that would lead to his crucifixion, but but Peter was just verbal. But a betrayal is a betrayal. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus looked at Peter right in the eye and knew that this was going to happen. And he did it three times. You see, the difference between Judas the betrayer and the Christian, or Judas the false disciple and the real disciple like Peter, friends, is not, and we're going to see this again next week, not that one betrayed and the other didn't. The difference between Judas and Peter and the difference between, therefore, the false disciple and the true disciple is not that one was betraying and the other didn't. No. Judas betrayed out of love of money. Peter betrayed out of love of reputation. You can try to weigh them, you can try to compare them, but betrayals are betrayals. What what makes a difference? Purely one of forgiveness. One was betrayed, both were betraying, but one was forgiven. You see, we do this, Christians betray God every day. If you're not a believer, you're betraying God right now, even today. You see, the, the Christian doctrine of sin says you can't even preach a sermon without sinning. At every moment, the deepest darkest depths of your heart, you continually forget God, you continually spurn Him, you continually think thoughts that are not after God's thoughts, you don't set Him apart as your Lord and Savior, not at every point, and you do not, you sin every day, right? There's a parable in the book of Matthew about a servant who kept apologizing to his master and then later that day, the servant would commit the same thing again and then came back to apologize to his master and over and over again and you might think, what kind of servant is this? He just keeps doing the same thing over and over again and then asking for forgiveness over and over again for the same sins over and over again. That's you. That's us and God. That's how we, we betray Him every single day. And let me just say, for every... I've heard this claim made so many times. All right? If, if I had a thousand rupiah for every time someone says this to me, I think I'm going to be rich. Um, I've heard it said so many times by so many different people. Look, I go to church once in a while, maybe in Christmas. I'm religious. I'm, I'm, I'm not religious at all, but I'm a good person. You know, I, I tell the truth. I love my wife. I, I have integrity in my job. I, 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 do, I do good things. I sometimes even give to the poor. I, I come to church on, on Christmas. I, I, see, I'm not religious, but, but I, I do good. See, isn't that what matters? As long as you're good, you don't need to be religious. You just, just need to be good. Nope. It <laughs> doesn't work that way. That's false. It matters. Yeah, think about this, okay? This is how we betray God every single day, especially apart from Christ. You see, if that's the way you think, you've got you to gotta really reconceive this in a completely different way. If God exists, friends, if God exists, you owe everything to Him. See, imagine a parent, say a mother, a single parent even, right? and, and this mother worked every day sacrificed everything she ever had, sold all her jewelry, sold sold all her precious things so that she could raise her kids, work multiple jobs, raise her kids, send them off to college, make sure that they had a good job afterwards. And then by the end of this, that mother is tired and older. And then the kid says, right? Well, I don't need to see my mom, but, but I'm a good person. I see her once a year, you know, happy Mother's Day. I send her a card. But every day, as long as I do good in my job, I do good in my grades, I I serve the poor well, I tell the truth, it doesn't matter if I go and meet my mother. That kid owed everything to his mom. Friends, you owe everything to God. If God exists, you owe your life, everything you ever had, and you might think to yourself, okay, if, if, if you're here right now with the money that you have, with the career that you have, with the family that you have, and you thought that you worked for it, and you didn't. You weren't. You didn't choose to be born in your family. You didn't choose to be in the schools where your parents put you. I don't don't care how successful you are. If you were born in the 12th century in the middle of Italy to slave parents, you're not going to get it. don't care how hard you work. You owe everything to God and every day, friends, you spurn Him away, you forget Him. Friends, the difference between you and Judas It's not that Judas was a betrayer and you didn't. The difference between you and Judas, friends, if you're a Christian here today, is that you're forgiven. Every one of us, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So why was Jesus betrayed? Why was Jesus betrayed? Christianity says, friends, that you don't become a Christian. You don't become religious. You don't become spiritual. You don't become any better by your own works. You're not, you're, not, you're not accepted by God by anything you've ever done. You're accepted. The only thing you contributed to your salvation is your own sin. God forgave you. But how can a just and holy God forgive you? Well, let me just return to the text one more time and we'll close with this. There's a reason why John throughout this gospel does not mention his own name by name. John in this gospel and in this text mentions himself merely as the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple was sitting by Jesus. The beloved disciple reclined towards Jesus' chest. And the word chest or bosom there is is referred to twice in the Greek. Every time John was reclining, he was reclining towards his chest. And then John reclined again to ask Jesus. He was reclining upon his chest. Why does John not simply mention himself? Some people will say, well, John is just kind of prideful. He's just a beloved disciple. It's Jesus' favorite. No, that's not why I think. Why he did that. John is trying to communicate not the specificity or the specialness of who he is as a beloved disciple, but John instead was trying to communicate that he stands in for every Christian today. If you are a Christian today, friends, and you're reading this narrative, you're not Jesus trying to fight off the devil, you're not the hero of the story, and Jesus is not your example. What John is trying to communicate here today, friends, it's not what would Jesus do and here's how you follow him, but instead, what? If you're so beloved by Jesus, here's where you are. Jesus was afraid. Jesus was God himself. And you were able to recline on his side, hidden from the terrors of Satan, hidden from the real betrayal. And Jesus could motion into your ear, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. I'm about to do this for you. I'm about to do this for you. And notice in verse 30, it was night. In John 9, 4, Jesus had said, there will come a night when no one can work. While light is here, you can work with me. But when it comes to night, no one can work. In other words, no one can work other than Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian, all you could do at this point in this narrative is say, Jesus, I depend on you completely. Hide me. Go into the night for me. Be betrayed for me. Let me rest on your side forever. Let me be assured of your love forever. Take this for me. You should have been the one crucified. But instead, it was Jesus who was crucified. We should have been the one facing the devil and facing the wrath of God. But Jesus was the one who faced the wrath of God. Your sin had merited the wrath of God. And Jesus is saying to you today, rest by my side. I have taken it for you and I'll go into the night for you. I lived the life you should have lived and I'm about to die the death that you should have died. Rest in Jesus. And if you haven't, friends, realize that how much you you depend on him. Realize your sins. Let us pray. Father, we've betrayed you. Every day we betray you. Every bitter thought, every act of uncontrollable anger, every act of greed, every act of lust, every act of betrayal to one another, Lord God, we know first and foremost we're not only breaking laws, but we're breaking your heart. Father, help us now realize that the only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that one is better then the other. So the one is betrayed and the other was innocent. No, Lord God, the only thing that makes us any different is that you forgive. And you forgive only because your son paid the penalty. And now we can hide on his side because he was our substitute. He took the wrath that we should have. So Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood cure me now. Amen.